What famous aspect of football was invented by a deaf quarterback? Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> okay. What is the largest animal to ever exist on Earth? Mmm. Mmm. Answers to those <laughs> and other big questions coming up in this half hour of the Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, Marcia, what famous aspect of football was invented by a deaf quarterback? Oh, I bet I know. Oh, darn. Well, maybe I don't. What is it? Hand signals. No. No? Not per se. You know, the coach is there and he's telling you what to do. And uh, there's this. Aaron Rodgers is always doing this. Can't hear you. (laughs) So then he's got to do. All right. That wasn't it, huh? Okay. Uh, Then tell me, Bob. It's a much more fundamental portion of the game. Every team does it. Okay. It's the football huddle. Oh, so they can get together, blow kisses, and talk about what they had for dinner. Well, here's the background behind that. It was invented by Paul Hubbard, who was a deaf quarterback with Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C. In fact, to this day, Gallaudet has a website entitled Home of the Huddle <laughs> with a TM next to the word huddle in Really? It. Yeah, to claim the word as a trademark. Wow. Gallaudet University. What? The first football huddle began in 1894. Gallaudet quarterback Paul Hubbard is credited with creating the huddle during that season when they went up against two different Deaf schools. Okay. Yeah. So GU went 5-2-1 in 1894, and they defeated the Pennsylvania Deaf School 24 to nothing, and the New York Deaf School 20-6. to Now, Hubbard was worried that the other teams were stealing Gallaudet's plays because his signing was out in the open, oh, like yeah, he said. Oh, yeah, of course. So he decided to circle up his teammates. And they do it in the huddle, the sign language. Yeah, so well, the huddle was born there. Well, I'll be darned. And after college, he moved to Kansas and became an instructor in the Kansas School for the Deaf. And in 1899, he again used the huddle. Soon that system spread to football teams throughout the Midwest. I thought that was interesting. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it is that time of season, isn't it? Yeah. Before I do my question, let me just say a avid listener told me that Joanne Woodward is not dead. (laughs) (laughs) She's very much alive. She's very much alive, 91 years old. And last week when I was giving her great quote, I said she was the late great, but no, she's 91, alive and well. Sorry, Joanne. Let's go out for wine and talk it over. She's great, but not yet late. (laughs) Okay, what's your question? What is the largest animal, Bob, to ever exist on Earth? The largest animal to ever exist on Earth? And I always think something like the Tyrannosaurus Rex or the blue whale or the white whale, one of those things. Well. Well? Well. Well. Would you believe the blue whale is as big as 30 Tyrannosaurus Rex? Holy cow! I had no idea. I know we've talked about the blue whale before, and it's the big this and big that, but I didn't know. I thought dinosaurs were the biggest animal to ever roam the earth. I thought I could maybe trick you with the way I put that out there. But an adult blue whale can weigh about the same as 40 elephants, 30 Tyrannosaurus Rex. 
or 2,670 average-sized men. (laughs) Can you believe it? That's according to BBC Earth. They're almost 400,000 pounds and 100 feet long. Isn't it funny because you think of, uh, you know, um, Jurassic Park and that big Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yeah, I thought that was it. But the blue whale is how many times bigger than that? 30. You can't do much with that running across the screen, though, can you? (laughs) But the music, I'm sure we'd have some good (laughs) music for that. Swimming across the screen. And they live in all the oceans, Bob, except the Arctic. So they're in every ocean. Okay. All right. What you got for me? How about more (laughs) sports questions for you? Okay. Okay, here's one. Why do golf balls have dimples? Oh, well, gee. Come on, Marsh. Tell me what it is. Something to do with aerodynamics. That's exactly right. All right, then. I'm exactly right. Moving on. No, wait a minute. (laughs) They call it aerodynamic optimization, and it came across as an accident. According to Scientific American, golfers started noticing in the early days the balls that were banged up, they'd go farther than the clean new balls. I'll be darned. And that was because of that kind of thing. That's how they figured it out. Yeah. Now, a dimpled ball travels twice as far as a smooth one. Is that right? Yeah. That's because the dimples produce a boundary of air around the ball, reducing the wake of the air as well as the drag. So the air flows more smoothly. All right. Remember uh, last week you and I were so fascinated by my Antarctica uh, questions. You know who owns it? It's like five or six nations claim the land, I think. Correct. Are we one of them? No, we're not. Very good. It's Argentina, Australia, Chile, France, New Zealand, Norway, and not the United States. It's not considered a country. It has no government and no indigenous populations. Yeah. Military activity is banned, as is prospecting for minerals. Unique in the world, it is a land totally dedicated to science and all nations. That's great. Yeah. That's great. And we mentioned they have two ATMs there. So. That's right, on, at, the, <laughs> at the American base. <laughs> you mentioned when we talked about that last week, uh, we talked about the temperature in the summer. So I'm going to ask you, when is the warmest weather in Antarctica? Oh, you have an Antarctica? Yeah, I have oh. a couple of things. When is the warmest now, it, weather? It only has two seasons. Summer and winter. Summer and winter. And so you want me to say what month is the warmest? What month, yes. I'll say... July. Nope, it's January. <laughs> <laughs> that's Oh, that's their summer? It's reverse? Yes, it's oh, the reverse. Okay, okay. And their average temperature can climb all the way up to 32 degrees Fahrenheit oh, on really? the peninsula. Yeah, oh, that's after the sun rises in late October. The continent thaws a little tiny bit. Is Viking cruises there? I don't God? think they... I don't no, think so. No. Okay, it, it would cause some problems. Okay, and then another question. Which of these does Antarctica not have... Penguins, lakes, trees, or mountains? It doesn't have trees. You're absolutely right. I am absolutely right. Remember that later on. Oh, okay. <laughs> no and matter it, what the problem, of it, course. It does have lakes, but most of them are subglacial, so you okay. may not see them. But it's just too cold and icy for trees. So okay. another foray into the land of Antarctica. <laughs> Why are we All fascinated right. with that? Well, We're I from Wisconsin. We, we have yeah, Antarctica. We, we got enough. <laughs> okay. Who are the top oil producers in the world? One, two, three. Who's the top? One, two, three. Who's number one? It's the Middle Eastern countries, I think, or United Arab Emirates, I think. One of those places? Nope. Is it not United Arab Emirates? Nope. What is it? 
They're number two. We're number one. Oh, no kidding. I wouldn't have guessed that in a million. Wow. And Russia is number three. The United States does 20% of the world oil with about 19 million barrels a day. And the two big states are Texas and North Dakota. They're the biggest producers. Mm. North Dakota. I got into that because I'm reading a book and it's all about the oil fields in North Dakota. And I didn't even know there were oil fields Oh, yeah. They had, they had a big oil run a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, number two, Saudi Arabia. Okay. 11%. We were 20%. They're 11. It's 11% and 11 million barrels a day. Oh, really? Same thing with Russia. 10.5% and almost 11 million barrels a day. Hmm. And the fourth one is Canada, who uh, does 6% of the world's oil. Another country that had a big uh, oil rush not too many years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Marcia, an expression I have a question about. Okay. Wear your heart on your sleeve. Yes. Where does that come from? Yes, yes. And it had something to do with uh, the knights of yore. The, uh, yeah. Did it? Mm-hmm. Did uh, to signify their love or something, they draw a little heart on their uh, armor? It's very much like what we talked about a couple weeks ago when we discussed the coat of arms. Yeah. They would wear some sort of insignia on their arm that indicated the the ladies for whom they were hoping to triumph. Uh Uh-huh. Is that what you did with me, Bob? (laughs) Thus promising their love to the world. My heart is on my sleeve. Anyway, that's the story. Okay. I, I got one more here I thought you'd find interesting. Okay. Since you are partly French, where does the expression pardon my French come from? Merci beaucoup. I do love the sound of French. This goes back to England's dislike pardon. for the French. Oh, yeah. They always, yeah, they are always <laughs> nicking at each other. They vex each other, don't they, Bob? <laughs> um, the English came up with that. Pardon my French. Well, I don't know. They When they started swearing, they just think of them as dogs, so they say, pardon my French, just to pimp them a little bit. Well, you got the spirit of it, let's put it that way. (laughs) Back in England in the early 1800s, people would beg pardon for using French words in conversation. Oh. And that was because uh, most people didn't like the French that much. They they didn't speak French, and furthermore, the Napoleonic Wars had left a lot of animosity between those two countries. Okay. So by the mid-1800s, the phrase had evolved to refer to, like you said, swear words. The Cambridge Dictionary defines the idiom as something to be said when pretending to be sorry for offending language. (laughs) So you'd say, pardon my French, but Uh blah, blah, blah. You're not really sorry. No, you're not sorry. That's where it came from. Very good. Well, you know the term strike, like workers going on strike, right? Yes, yes. Where does that word come from? Why is it called strike? I thought it came from striking tents or striking sets in the theater. Well, you're not too far away. Okay. But you're far away. I'm far away. (laughs) I'm way over here. It goes all the way back to 1768 when British sailors refused to work and showed this by striking or lowering the sails on their ships. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, so it was sailors used in the same purpose it is used today. They go on strike. Yeah. So when you went on strike, if you're on a ship, you, you struck the sails. Yep. Isn't that, I thought that, always thought that was an interesting term for taking something down. Strike the set, strike the tents. It's yeah, just kind it of goes strange. all the way back to 1768. Wow. Robert. Okay, here's another one. Where does the expression spill the beans come from? Uh, spill the beans, spill the beans. Uh, tell me. 
Think back to something you were talking about a couple of months ago. Oh, sure. I'll how, just pull that tri- one up. No, listen to me. How tribes were voting in Africa. Oh, yeah, with marbles in, in pails. Well, apparently that goes back to the ancient Greeks where people would use beans to vote anonymously. Okay. And white beans were used for positive votes. And for negative votes, black beans or other dark-colored beans were used. The votes were cast in secret. So, if somebody knocked over the beans in the jar, whether by accident or intentionally, they spilled the beans and revealed the results of the votes prematurely. Oh, be darned. Yeah. Spill the beans is like, oh, she told the story, you know. (laughs) But that was prematurely telling how the election was going to go by spilling the beans. Isn't it fascinating to go back and see the original use of these and they just get worked back into conversations? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that one comes from Reader's Digest. Where does the phrase spill the beans come from? By Madeline Wall and Kelly Keene. I just thought that was a cute little story. It is cute. And now I'm going to just give you some words of wisdom, Bob, from various media outlets or people. This one is from Dan Rather. And now the sequence of events in no particular order. (laughs) (laughs) The Detroit Daily News. Weather forecast. Precipitation in the morning, rain in the afternoon. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Orlando Lawyers TV commercial. If you or any member of your family has been killed, then call us. (laughs) If you've been killed, give us a call. The Providence Journal. Man thought hurt, but slightly dead. What? (laughs) Man thought hurt, but But slightly slightly dead. dead. Yeah, that was right out of the story. And finally, this from the Miami Herald. Man shoots neighbor with machete. This is why journalism is going out of business, I think. I thought it was just punctuation, but apparently, no, we're not even paying attention to what we're saying. Should we take a break? Okay, we'll take a break and come back in a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. We're back, and I've got a quick question about animals. What animals make noises in the key of F? Uh, tell me. It's just an odd thing. House flies. Really? Yeah. Thanks to their fast buzzing wings, they hum in the key of F. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Wow. Okay, another, yes. another fact about an animal. What animals are lock pickers? Oh, really? Can get open a lock. Think of who might open a lock. Well, uh, not a raccoon. No. But something with claws, right? Claws, yeah. Squirrels, they're very tenacious. I think these animals use claws and their... Teeth. Well, I don't know if I'd call them teeth. (laughs) What would you call it? Tell me, Robert. What? Beak. Oh, a beak. A bird can uh, pick a lock? Well, certain kinds. Which kind? Cockatoos. Cockatoos Uh with no prior training or even exposure are able to pick almost any lock. Now, this comes from the University of Oxford. They set a number of cockatoos a challenge. Pick a lock to access a nut visible Uh, behind a transparent door. uh So there's a a nut in there I want to get to. And the birds had to remove a pin followed by a screw and a bolt before they turned a wheel to release the latch. Well, I'm impressed. It's amazing. I'll try that with you and a bowl of graham crackers. <laughs> <laughs> Five birds were successful after some guidance or with practice, but one of the cockatoos called Pippin broke in unassisted in under two hours. He was two also, hours? Yeah, it took him two hours. He's also the only bird to remove the screw with his foot instead of his beak. And the secret to their success, using touch extensively, 
Rather than simply using their vision, they use physical manipulation and wow, tongue go. and beak and characteristic parrots. They had a great advantage. Very good, Pippin. I'm impressed. <laughs> I don't know. How do, um, how do am I going to have to listen to how this? How do cockatoos sound? In the history of satellites out yonder, Bob, mm-hmm. how many have been destroyed, can you guess, by meteorites? How many have been destroyed by meteorites? Uh-huh. I'll I, just take a guess. Okay, I'll say, I'll say a thousand. One. What? One. The European Space Agency's Olympus satellite was the only one ever destroyed by a meteor in 1993. Wow. Well, you know, come to think of it, if there were a thousand that had been destroyed, we'd probably have a lot of dead astronauts out there, too, with I, their spacecraft yeah, being I know, hit. but one. I, I was amazed at that. Well, that shows you the power of our atmosphere to burn things up, you know? Yes. What did ancient Egyptians place their right hands on when they were swearing an oath? What did ancient Egyptians place yeah. their right hands on? To they, take an oath. You is this something we know about today? That we, oh, yeah. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Did they put it on a, a sacred book or something, like the Bible is? No. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Not even but Did close. they put it on their hearts? Something we have in the uh, refrigerator. <laughs> They put that in the artichoke hearts. No, no, what? what? An onion. Oh, my goodness. Why an onion? Because it's round, and it symbolized eternity. So if you were going to take an oath and swear by something, you'd put your right hand on an onion. (laughs) Wow, an onion is round. I guess it symbolizes eternity, and you can keep peeling it off, and it's still round. Still round. There's probably magical things about that. It could be. Okay, think of uh, places to go into a concert, all right? I'm not talking about a stadium. I'm talking about a concert hall, an auditorium. Uh-huh. Where is the largest concert hall in America? I'll give you some cities. Okay. Branson, Missouri, uh-huh. New York City, uh-huh. Los Angeles, Salt Lake, Chicago. Where is the well, largest concert I've- hall in America? My first thought, of course, is New York. I think of uh, Carnegie or something, one of those. But I have a feeling you wouldn't have asked me if it was that obvious. So I will say say Salt Lake City. You're absolutely right. (laughs) The LDS Conference Center, owned by the Mormon Church, it's 1.4 million square feet in size, and it can seat 21,200 people. Mormon Tabernacle Choir performs there. Yeah, yeah. Here's how big it is. It's big enough to store two Boeing 747 airplanes inside, parked side by side, and it's thought to be the largest theater-style hall ever built. It was completed in 2000. That's big. All that comes from the World Atlas. What's the most popular month for birthdays, Bob? I was always thinking August or September. Well, yes, and your son is right smack in the middle of that September. Yes. And if you scroll back 40 weeks... Uh, you'll find yourself in the December holiday season. Mm. Uh, for winter lovers, uh, the most common birthdays are between September 9th and September 20th. Uh, what is the least common birthday? Are Christmas and New Year's days. So go back nine months from Christmas, you're in the spring, I guess, right? Okay, yeah. Yeah, and sense. you're just uh, exhausted okay. from the winter festivities. Is that, is that it? <laughs> sure. And, and shoveling if you're in the Midwest. Uh, once or twice on this show, we talked about something that a uh, famous writer worked on, and it was advertising, okay? Uh-huh. So I'm going to ask you this. Who wrote this? This was an advertising slogan. 
We keep you clean in muscatine. <laughs> that was for a Midwestern laundry. Teen. That's a town in Iowa. Oh, is that right? Yeah, we oh. keep you clean in muscatine. <laughs> a laundry in Iowa. Oh, okay. What famous writer wrote that slogan before he became a novelist? We keep you clean in muscatine. All right. It wasn't like Mark Twain or something. Is it uh, somebody I know and oh, yeah. love? Or? Yeah, and it was after Mark Twain. It was, it was a 20th century 20th writer. 20th century guy, John Updike, somebody like that. No, before that, he wrote for movies, but he was known best for gotcha. writing All novels. Right. Tell me, tell me. Up. All right. It was F. Scott Fitzgerald. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> after being discharged from the Army, he became an advertising copywriter, and he wrote that and other cute phrases for clients. Well, Bob, what's the most expensive spice in the world? Old spice. <laughs> no, no. Uh, what is the most expensive spice in the world? Uh-huh. Cinnamon yeah. was very, very big. But it wasn't. it's not expensive. Well, what kind of spice is expensive? Saffron. Why, you ask? Why? It takes 75. 5,000 crocus flowers to produce one pound of saffron. Wow. Yeah, and it's the most expensive spice in the world, and it's much coveted in many countries. It's used in food, medicine, and cosmetics. And two pounds of saffron can easily sell for three to $4,000. Man, even today, huh? Yeah, yeah. Okay, another advertising question. What was the very first newspaper advertisement? What was it for? Now, this goes all the way back to 1622. Oh, gosh. I'm trying to think. Was what would it? somebody advertise way back then? Yeah. Something that was missing. Something that was missing? Something to do with clothes? No. Food? No. Um, pain? No. No. Historian Henry Sampson believes it was an ad for the return of a stolen horse. In an early English newspaper, the first oh. of which was the Weekly News in 1622. He's looking for his stolen horse. Oh, okay. So he wants his horse back. He wants he'll will he pay money for it? Well, yeah, but it's been four hundred years, so <laughs> I think it's too late now. Kind of dust, huh? Okay. How long does the average American or Bob Smith spend each year looking for lost items? Oh, that happens every day. <laughs> Every hour, it seems. Okay, so is there a number of hours this has been given? uh, In a year. In a year. Yeah. Okay, let's see. We did one about brushing your teeth, and we assumed that was like 24 hours every year. Yeah, so they think we spend more time, Bob, looking for things than brushing our teeth. (laughs) Oh, dear. Both both of us do. Oh, no. Okay, let's say three days. Very good. Two and a half. Two and a half days of a year. Each year, looking for lost items. That's according to one study. And the most common items, TV remotes, phones, <laughs> keys, glasses, and wallets and purses. Thank God for cell phones because you can call them and hear them ring. That's right. And here's the good news. Millennials are twice as likely as boomers to lose their stuff. Oh, that's good to yeah, know. Isn't that good? Yeah. That's great. Yeah, okay. That's tell the, to don't, don't tell the kids that. <laughs> We'll just... <laughs> okay, what I got do you got? two more advertising questions. This is kind of a advertising 101, what not to do, okay? Mm-hmm. What explorer misnamed an area he discovered to advertise it as something it wasn't? Huh? <laughs> what explorer misnamed an area he discovered to advertise it as something it wasn't? <laughs> 
Well, that is, uh, I, can you give me a little more clues It's a here? geographic question. This goes way back before advertising, actually, about 982 A.D. I don't know. Okay. Uh, is it something to do with an island? Is yes, it, it does. Is it say, is that land, Island, island? Uh, Greenland. Greenland. <laughs> <laughs> Eric the Red discovered a new land Eric covered with ice and snow. <laughs> uh-huh. It was covered with ice and snow in 982 AD, and he tried to encourage his fellow Norsemen to go there. So he named it Greenland. And shortly thereafter, 25 ships filled with eager settlers sailed for the place. That's funny. The funny thing is, Iceland has more green than Greenland. Yeah, I know. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of countries... What country has more psychoanalysts than any other place in the world? Oh, this will be interesting. What country (laughs) has more psychoanalysts? I would say the United States. You'd think, but it doesn't even come close to this country. What country? Argentina. Oh, no kidding. Yes, particularly Buenos Aires. According to the World Health Organization, they rank Argentina with the highest per capita psychologists, 106 psychologists per 100,000 people. Jeez. And that compare that to the U.S., we only have 29 per 100,000. Hmm. Uh, so Wonder what's wrong down there. I don't know, but they <laughs> love going. And Argentina has about 81,000 practicing psychologists. Gosh, that seems a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> it's for... crazy. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have guessed Argentina. Okay, now one more advertising question. How did Benjamin Franklin stretch the truth in his advertisements <laughs> for his Franklin stove? How did he stretch the truth? Well, he was talking about the old-fashioned stoves. What would happen to people if they continued using those instead of his new stove? Okay. In the Pennsylvania Gazette ads for his Franklin stove, he warned people their teeth and jaws would go bad, their skin skin would shrivel, and their eyes would fade if they continued to use old-fashioned stoves. Oh, my God. This is considered to be the first example of the modern ad technique of warning against so-called inferior brands. Ben, 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 you disappoint me with this. But he didn't have to worry about the newspaper rejecting his ads. He published the Pennsylvania Gazette. Oh, oh, he probably would have put marbles in the bottom of his branded soup, Oh, gosh, I don't know. That is is funny. Okay. All right, I'm going to close up with several presidential odd quotes. Here's one from Bill Clinton. Politics gives guys so much power that they tend to behave badly around women, and I hope I never get into that. (laughs) He said that to a woman friend when he was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, Oh, my goodness. Okay, George W. Bush. I have opinions of my own, strong opinions, but I don't always agree with them. (laughs) What? He said that? George W. Bush said that? Yeah, Oh, that's hilarious. Richard Nixon. Solutions are not the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what are? I don't know. And finally, our beloved Abe Lincoln. If I were two-faced, would I be wearing this one? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a funny one. He makes fun of himself Uh in a lot of his writings. That's hilarious. That's great. Say, we want to uh, do a little addition to an item that we did a week ago about George Bush. The elder. The elder Bush. Remember, uh, he did uh, that jump at the age of 72. We want to uh, add that uh, one of our listeners said that he did three additional jumps after that. One on his 80th birthday, one on his 85th, and one on his 90th. Yes. Those are all times he jumped out of an airplane. Yeah. That's amazing. Got That's a lot to look amazing. forward to, don't we, Bob? That's right. 
Okay. So that's it for The Off-Ramp. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more trivia questions on The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.